This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we look at the South American country of Ecuador. With just a bit more than two months before presidential elections there, Ecuador is primed to make headlines next year in 2013. But first, Kurt Devine is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. Venezuela's president, Hugo Chavez, underwent surgery this week in Cuba to fight a reoccurring case of cancer. The 58-year-old president has had four procedures since his diagnosis in June of 2011, but the Venezuelan government has not disclosed the form of cancer he has. Venezuela's Minister of Communication, Ernesto Villegas, spoke about Chávez's recovery. We trust in the physical and spiritual strength of our leader, Hugo Chávez, and in his medical treatment. At this hour, medical records show he is in stable condition in this progressive process. The vice president of Venezuela cast doubts on whether or not Chávez would be able to take office in January for another six-year presidential term. We'll have a commentary about Chavez's illness later in this program. Guatemalan authorities deported software pioneer John McAfee to the U.S. after denying his request for asylum. McAfee fled to Guatemala from his home in Belize, where investigators wanted to question him about a murdered neighbor. McAfee landed in Miami Thursday, but his legal status within the U.S. has not been announced. A recent investigation found that Mexican drug cartels have been using Europe's largest bank, HSBC, to launder money. The U.S. Senate says drug kingpins in Mexico and other international criminal groups have used the bank to conceal and transfer funds. HSBC will now have to pay $1.9 billion in penalties to U.S. authorities. The investigation revealed that the Mexican branch of HSBC transferred $7 billion to a U.S. branch, but bank executives did not treat the transactions as suspicious. Mexican-American singer Jenny Rivera died after a small jet she was traveling in crashed in northern Mexico. All seven passengers, including the two pilots, died in the crash. The cause of the accident has not been determined. A daughter of Mexican immigrants to California, Rivera sold about 15 million records and received multiple Grammy nominations during her career. She was a star in the banda and norteño music scene, including the hit Detrás de Mi Ventana and many others. She was 43 years old when she died. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. This week, depending upon what polls you read, Ecuador's president, Rafael Correa, is either set to easily win re-election in February of 2013, or he'll face some daunting challenges from a former president, a leading banker, and the country's richest man. Rob Albro of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University joins us for a discussion of Ecuadorian politics. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded conversation. There are a total of eight formal candidates, which is a pretty high number. Most of those are not seriously competitive. Uh, Correa is 
by far and away the most popular of the candidates at this point. We can return to that in a moment. The other three who are important to at least uh, gesture toward are uh, Alberto Acosta, who is a leftist in uh, a kind of classic tradition of uh, uh, radical left, progressive left politics in Ecuador and Latin America. And he's kind of taken up the space that many leftists in some frustration have felt that uh, Correa has abandoned in the course of his, um, the decision making and his, his sort of policy making throughout his presidency. We, we could describe Correa as leftist, and he certainly would. He talks about his government as socialist, but it's moved back and forth on the political dial somewhere between the center and the left. And so Acosta sort of has staked out a left, the far farther, left. farther left from uh, Correa. Then we have um, uh, Lucio Gutierrez. He's a former president. He was forced from office after two years. Um, Gutierrez is in this landscape a moderate. Um, he left office prematurely basically because um, different uh, groups lost uh, faith in his presidency because he had seemed to be continuing uh, fairly straightforward neoliberal economic policies of his predecessor, which had been the reason that person had been forced out. And so then he in turn followed. And, and he leads this group, the Patriotic Society of January 21st. Right. Now, uh, which should give you an idea of the tenor of the election, because one of the things that's been very prominent on the political landscape in Ecuador in recent years, particularly this past year, has been uh, patriotism, uh, sort of regular nods in the direction of Ecuador as a sovereign nation, the importance of that sovereignty, the question of sovereignty having worked out in particular ways across a variety of policies that Correa has, has uh, developed. And Correa himself has appealed to sort of the patriotism of, of uh, Equatorianos in regular ways, which is why he's often talked about as a populist of a certain sort. The last person I put in there, and probably the most serious uh, challenge to Correa, if challenge there be, is uh, this guy, uh, Guillermo Lasso. Now, Lasso, if uh, Acosta is, on, is, is left of Correa, if uh, Gutierrez is just to the right in a moderate space, uh, Lasso generally is understood as uh, traditionally to the right. Um, he has had definite ideas about what should be done vis-a-vis -vis Ecuador and uh, the international uh, the global economy, transnational corporations, big business, banks. All of his positions on those are fairly traditional right Latin American positions. Ecuador should be courting those relationships, building its economy through those partnerships with international uh, capital and so forth. I wanted to bring up uh, Alvaro Noboa. Yeah, Noboa. Who is the richest man in Ecuador and, and is heading the PRIAN. Is he not a serious candidate? No, he's, he really isn't. Um, in uh, sort of the politics of the Andes, Bolivia, Ecuador, Peru, and and beyond, the term quemado is often used to describe uh, political has-beens, and, and that really does, unfortunately, uh, fit with Noboa. He was a contentious former president. Uh, he uh, is a guy who um, shares many of the characteristics of uh, Korea, uh, but he, he won't be able to command uh, a vote beyond single digits. So when he says he's leading in the polls, 
uh, he's imagining this. He is, it is completely illusory. The current most recent poll, popularity poll for uh, Korea has him at something like 80% popularity. This was September. That is extraordinary, to say the least, and unprecedented. In other neighboring countries, we've seen similar popularity trajectories of leaders. Morales and Chavez come to mind. Um, they're not at that level. And uh, so there have been some questions about the number and where it comes from. And in part, that, that has to do with sort of the media space in Ecuador in its current state of affairs. Well, well, let's talk about the media space in, in a second. So more or less, this February election, this is, this is a, it's a walk for, for the president. Correa should win handily. He should command at least 50-plus percent of the vote. That is what is expected to happen. If that happens, he will not have to face a runoff election. You mentioned the media space. President Correa has been uh, very tough on the media and has been criticized by international journalism groups for mm -hmm. being someone trying to restrict free speech. So are we really getting a, a real picture of the political scene in, in Ecuador, an accurate picture? Well, uh, I think that we have a pretty good handle on things simply because there are so many different media sources beyond simply the uh, government official media sources in Ecuador. We did just have an election in Mexico where Peña Nieto's victory seems to be a kind of clear indication of what happens when national media uh, uh, prefer one candidate over another and give that candidate tremendous uh, space uh, to the disadvantage of the other candidates. Is that what's happening in, in Ecuador, despite the criticisms in the newspapers? Well, I was going to say, so it's not um, misplaced for Korea to be concerned about the media space. This is not a straightforward issue. The problem, I think, from Korea's point of view historically has been that one of Ecuador's fundamental structural difficulties is the role of its political and economic elite. And he, as a kind of neo-populist, has set his task uh, that of, in, a, in an important way, kind of similar to how Morales talks about decolonialization of the country, to moving beyond the era of elite-dominated politics and economics. And that's Evo Morales in Bolivia. Right. And so the difficulty of moving beyond historically entrenched ways of organizing your institutional realities in the country is that if you don't have a balanced media space, uh, how do you create one? And Korea could be not altogether incorrect that the media ha picks and chooses and that the media is far from balanced and that bias is certainly a part of it. But then what do you do? So his solution has been to counter that by uh, building up the state's own media. Um, but, of course, the Internet is not an effective means to do that. You know, the, the Obama uh, victories in the United States has, is often routinely talked about in terms of the, his, his media savviness with digital media. Korea doesn't have that luxury, so instead it's television, radio, newspapers. And the fact of creating these state-sponsored platforms looks a lot like the authoritarian strategies of the 60s and 70s and so forth in Latin America. But in a way, they're also responding to an historical dilemma of the uh, 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 not very internally variegated national media space. 
you you brought up the comparisons of Evo Morales and of Hugo Chavez in, in Venezuela. That also sounds like the solution that Chavez has followed in Venezuela. Um, all of these leaders, populists, tend to get thrown in the autocratic basket. Do you think that that is a fair representation? Well, I, I think it's very important for us to differentiate between Chavez, Correa, and Morales. I think Firstly and fundamentally, all of them are responding to particular domestic political exigencies and configurations. These are different countries, and they have different constituencies and different problems. That said, um, there are very interesting comparisons to make. And uh, I think we, we need to understand Korea as somewhere between, as a hybrid of what we see going on with Morales in Bolivia and with Chavez in, in Venezuela. He and Chavez are very uh, good friends, and they have regular relationships. Uh, and Both have that blustery. And they have a similar blustery style. Uh, Correa has been very you know, emotional about his relationship with Chavez and has not hit it or dissimulated about it. Um, the, the thing is that Ecuador... And uh, Korea, I think, is responding, is trying to, to do some new kind of combination of things, some of which look very much like Chavismo, trying to use uh, oil revenues and then plow those back into social services and uh, more equitable distribution of the economy, uh, which looks very much like what Chavez is doing and is uh, subject to the same vagaries and fluctuations of the oil as the primary export. But he's also uh, doing things that look very much like Morales in the area of the constitutional referendum. Um, Ecuador now understood as a plurinational country, um, supporting and recognizing um, indigenous rights in different ways, but not in the same way as Morales. Um, and, and it shows his kind of both mercurial and mixed record, Correa's mixed record in these areas. On the one hand, he has supported indigenous movements, rights. Pachacutic, the most prominent indigenous political party, was part of his original Alianza País, but they've since fallen away from him. And it's because he's not taken a straight line with respect to indigenous peoples. He's and, done different things. And they're things. lined up with Gutierrez now, aren't That's they? That's right. Um, and, in, and in part, the reason for that has to do with the fact that they historically supported him in his initial uh, period as president. But that was disastrous for Pachacutec. They, they, they went from being a, a, an important national political force, capitalizing on the transformational role that indigenous movements and organizations were able to seize for themselves from 1990 through 2000 to the present, to being almost irrelevant on the political landscape. And right now, they, they are not... Um, terribly influential. Well, we'll have to see if they have some impact on the coming polling and elections in Ecuador. Thank you very much, Rob Alvaro of the Center for Latin American and Latino Studies at American University. Join us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Happy to be here. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have. Because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. 
Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Ecuador's President Correa may dominate the political scene in his country, but as we heard on one of our programs earlier this fall, he's made waves internationally for giving asylum to Julian Assange of WikiLeaks fame. But Correa's record in the area of free speech is often questioned by human rights groups. We welcome back Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists to discuss these issues. Here are excerpts from our pre-recorded interview. President Correa, as you know, has uh, had a, a very intense uh, relationship with the media, mainly because um, he, he doesn't really like much uh, criticism. Uh, it has been uh, very difficult for President Correa to understand that uh, in a democracy, it is it is the democracy is more than just free elections. And uh, you know, when presidents get uh, elected by the people, they feel they kind of own everything, and some of the things they feel they own is, is freedom of expression. So when uh, the press has been uh, critical of the president, they uh, he usually tries to kind of um, dissuade dissent uh, by openly. Uh, criticizing the media and, you know, it's basically uh, when you have a country where there are weak uh, democratic institutions, when you have a judiciary that is not independent, it's very easy for many people to just complain and sue the press uh, for almost anything. Uh, almost anything could be considered a libel or slander if you are trying to criticize the authority. So that has that has encouraged uh, hundreds of lawsuits against the press and, and journalists are, are like on the wrong. And, and that hasn't been healthy. And um, the, the worst case scenario was when President uh, Correa sued one of the leading papers for uh, $40 million. And, uh, and he uh, three, won the case. Uh, he won the case and three of the editors basically are in exile overseas. Two are in, uh, two are in Panama and one is in Miami. Um, you, I believe, talked to one of these exiled publishers in Panama during the past year. Can you tell us a little bit about his experience? Yes. Uh, well, he has. We have, we have talked in, in different occasions, and uh, uh, the problem here is that um, when you have a president that controls the judiciary, you you, you have a control of the Supreme Court. Um, it's extremely difficult to defend yourself. So. Um, most of these uh, journalists uh, basically decided to leave, and uh, the uh, and they have basically done kind of a crusade, uh, visiting uh, nonprofit organizations, uh, human rights activist groups, just to bring to the attention of the war what's happening in Ecuador. And, and these are the Perez brothers, yes. Exactly, the Perez brothers, and in and. Uh, Emilio Palacios is the um, uh, one of the columnists that actually wrote this story that uh, created this whole case uh, just because he wrote that um, uh, President Correa was behind um, what it was called uh, human human rights atrocities during a, a, a supposedly failed coup against him which the police uh, staged uh, a little bit over a year ago. So, and, and he called him a dictator, did he it's not? Like the, in the column, too, they called him a dictator and, and someone that has abused, uh, committed uh, crimes against humanity. So that, that you can imagine that I was extremely offended uh, 
to President Correa, who, who you know, find the paper with $40 million. Actually, something is kind of a record. Uh, there, nothing like that has ever happened uh, in Latin America before. So he has set a precedent, and, um, and I will say that he follows pretty much the same style of President uh, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela. That's his style. He has kind of basically copycat uh, 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 President uh, Chavez's uh, style, um, creating his own program, uh, using a lot of these, uh, what is called cadenas, which are chains where... Uh, where they preempt the exactly, broadcast. Exactly. They kind of like, uh, you know, president gives big uh, speeches and, 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 and the stations have to carry, you know, as, as part of the... Um, uh, abiding with the laws uh, that they have to carry these these messages. So it's a very uh, there have been more than two hundred uh, uh, threats against the press, as you can imagine. When the these are countries where you have a the the weight of the president is very heavy. So whatever he says publicly, people people follow. So you have had a lot of people that you know uh, point you know at certain journalists just because the president complained on, on television and. That has created this environment where uh, the journalists are constantly under threat, not only by authorities, but also by regular citizens who are supporters of the president. We're, so we're talking about violence against journalists. Exactly. Oh, well, there, there are violence, but it's also legal violence, you know, not, not, not in a sense of physical, but legally. I mean, they, they, they face, uh, they are subpoena a lot of time. They they are harassed with, uh, with you know, label suits that... Threatened with with label suits and, and and journalists have to all the time uh, try to bring lawyers into the case so they can be defended. Uh, otherwise, they will be jailed. These presidents, Chavez, and in Ecuador, Correa, and other presidents that follow their lead are populists, and you could make the argument that they are attacking the media because, as populists, that they are trying to represent the lower classes and those who are not part of the privileged elite who own media in many of these countries. I would say that that's another good way to, to put it. I mean, uh, like uh, if you look at uh, President Correa, uh, as you know, have uh, he was elected by uh, the indigenous groups. They, he was elected by uh, people in the provinces, uh, uh, so he, he certainly has the support. He's still commanding uh, a lot of popularity. The same with Chavez. We saw it in the recent elections. So I, I think that 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 um, that speech, that discourse that this president has frankly, is really appealing to, especially to the masses and, and, and the poor, who, who most of the time has been disenfranchised from the decision-making process. So, uh, yes... Uh, there is high concentration. Uh, yes, this, the, uh, there, there is some credit in terms of the, that we need to open up the airways and allow more, more, more voices to be heard. Uh, on the other hand, um, whether or not this is the right way to do it, <laughs> by basically imposing and criticizing and undermining press freedoms, I, I think that would be uh, that's the problem. That's when when you have the confrontation. It's the way it's done, rather than the meaning that they probably might might want to have. Do you have any concerns about this period as we lead up to the elections in Ecuador in February? Um, any concerns about this pre-election period? Yes, I I I'm pretty con I'm very concerned because uh, 
quite often when you have uh, uh, populist presidents like President Correa, you 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 end up having an, an extremely polarized society. You know that that's that's the unfortunately that's the end result of this kind of populist government that they basically uh, bring people to the extremes, either against or in favor. And that's how they talk. You are with me or against me. And that's translated in day-to-day life. So I'm afraid that, uh, unfortunately, if, if this continues, which seems to be the way it would be, this could bring some violence into some of the ele- in the election process. I'm I'm afraid that when you have a society so polarized in a in a in a bad way because you could have a polarized society, uh, but in, in in a more civilized way, uh, that's I think that's healthy. That's a, a democracy. But when you you have a polarized society based on on imposing force, threats, and attacks then um, unfortunately, I might not be able to say that the elections were free and fair. Luis Boteo, thank you so much for joining us today. Luis Boteo of the International Center for Journalists in Washington, D.C. joins us today on Latin Pulse. Thank you, Rick. And now, Latin American Perspectives with Peter Hakem of the Inter-American Dialogue. As Venezuela's firebrand leader, Hugo Chavez, struggles to recuperate from his fourth cancer operation, there are growing questions about what will happen in Venezuela and more broadly in Latin America and U.S.-Latin American relations if he does not recover. Chavez's importance had become increasingly limited to Venezuela in the past few years. His regional and international influence shrank as the Venezuelan economy deteriorated and his energy and vitriol faded with his illness. Still, Chavez remained the master of ceremonies in Venezuela. There, he was the commanding political presence. It was Chavez, personally, that held the diverse Chavista movement together. He also succeeded in unifying a fractious opposition. His virtually total domination of the country's politics make it impossible to forecast how things play out when he is off stage. Chavez's death will not alter the broad dynamics of regional affairs. Brazil's predominant role in South America may be modestly reinforced. Despite his role in the negotiations, Chavez's death is unlikely to affect the prospects of peace between the Colombian government and the FARC guerrillas. Venezuela's support for Cuba has been essential to the island's economy, and it could face a humanitarian crisis if the aid were halted. Venezuelan aid has also been important to other countries, including Nicaragua and Bolivia. It is one of the few remaining customers for Argentina's bonds. Petro Caribe, Venezuela's program to assist the energy-poor countries of the Caribbean and Central America, has provided critical assistance during a period of high fuel prices. Chavez has been an irritant to the U.S., 
but his actions have played only a minor part in Washington's declining influence in the region. That has been mainly due to the dramatic changes that have taken place more generally in the region, which has become stronger economically, more independent politically, and more assertive internationally. The rise of Brazil has been particularly important. The U.S. has also lost influence because of its own economic problems, its debilitating political polarization, and the distractions of two overseas wars. For sure, Chavez's death will not restore U.S. authority in Latin America. Peter Hakem's opinions are his own and not the official opinions of this program. If you'd like to react to Latin American perspectives or any portion of this program, you may write us. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Or you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook. And now a programming note. Next week, Latin Pulse will come to you one day early on December the 20th. We'll have a special program looking at the truth behind the predictions surrounding the Mayan calendar and what's behind the sensationalism surrounding the apocalyptic predictions. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org forward slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escucha nosotros Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bathtime Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2012, Las Rocas Productions.